From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. It's the week we thought would never arrive. GP practices across the country joined the COVID-19 vaccine rollout on Monday, but late deliveries, floods and booking system malfunctions meant it was a bit of a bumpy start. Today, Bianca O'Grady on the start of the vaccine rollout and the latest information about COVID. Bianca, phase 1B of the COVID vaccine rollout began this week with general practices joining the vaccination efforts, but it wasn't without a somewhat bumpy start. What happened? Well, 1A, obviously, the, of the vaccine rollout has been underway for some time, but um, as we've seen from news headlines, things are happening a lot slower than expected. Why that's the case, I don't know, but it seems like there is quite a lack of communication perhaps between health authorities and GPs, vaccine providers. There's probably some infrastructure issues there. But so we've, we're, March 22nd was supposed to be the starting date for phase 1B. So this is when anyone aged 70 years or older, um, Indigenous Australians aged over 55, adults with certain medical conditions, <clears throat> people who work in critical or high-risk occupations, so emergency services, police, that sort of thing, um, they're now el- eligible for vaccination. But, I mean, Phase 1A was forecast to deliver around um, or up to 1.4 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but so far has only delivered, I think at last count, around 280-something uh, thousand. So well behind what was forecast, but um, obviously the wild weather and flooding this week hasn't helped the situation. Um, There are certain, I imagine, a lot of GP clinics who have had issues with flooded roads. Certainly where I live in the Blue Mountains, there's whole sections of the community that are completely and utterly cut off at the moment. I mean, it's a little bit chaotic. Um, I don't know whether we should be excusing the government given that, you know, this vaccine development and rollout has really happened with record speed and it is the largest vaccine, uh, sorry, vaccination campaign that the world has ever seen. I guess we do have to allow some flexibility, but yeah, certainly it, we've known this was com- these vaccines were coming. So um, it would be nice to think that better preparations would have been made to um, to enable a smoother rollout. But, you know, they're, they're happening, which is a, a good start, but it's very slow. Yeah, so I guess no one could have seen uh, the natural disaster as well that's happened over the last few days on the east coast of Australia. The Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Michael Kidd, said in a press conference on Sunday, I believe, that delays due to these floods were inevitable and he was saying that you know we need to keep in mind the safety for the delivery drivers and clinic staff but it did actually mean that some clinics have already cancelled hundreds of appointments and on Twitter I saw some GPs that actually went into work on Saturday and sat in their clinic all day for a delivery that never arrived. There's also been significant movement this week in the beginning of the local manufacturing of the AstraZeneca vaccines. Isn't that right, Bianca? Yeah, this is great. So, um, and this is particularly timely given that um, we've heard um, that uh, quite a few, uh, like hundreds of thousands of doses of vaccines that were supposed to be delivered from Europe to Australia were actually uh, held back, some might say kidnapped by certain EU states because uh, I guess they're kind of being held for ransom um, because of uh, non-deliveries or um, fa- um, manufacturers not meeting pre-specified deadlines and 
volumes of delivery in the EU. And so the EU a while back actually introduced some legislation to enable um, EU member states to actually um, hold back vaccines that were being dispatched to other parts of the world so that they could meet their own requirements. So Australia fell victim to that. Um, so the sooner we can roll out local manufacturing, the better. And um, the TGA has given the green light to um, CSL Bering and Sequiris, who have started now manufacturing the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine in Australia. Um, the first doses of that actually just being rolled out today, I believe. Uh, they, they only got the approval a few days ago, so they've obviously been moving very, very fast. You know, it's interesting talking about these delivery delays and, and the fact that we've had, you know, a natural disaster. We've got a state of emergency in place in a lot of parts of New South Wales. Uh, I mean, and this is Australia. You know, we do have natural disasters on a semi-regular basis, and it does highlight, I guess, that you know, even though we are a you know a wealthy nation, um, you know we we talk often about cold chain management and supply issues and medical infrastructure in in sort of low and middle income countries. Uh, you know we are experiencing those same issues, and particularly we have to mention that climate change is going to make these extreme weather events more likely, more frequent, more intense. Uh, so this is you know this is an ongoing issue that Australia will have to deal with. If it's not floods, it's bushfires or cyclones. Um, and delivery of things like vaccines, uh, you know, we have to take into account that, that those supply chains need to be future-proofed as well. Bianca, you may not know the answer to what I'm about to ask, but I was wondering if the CSL facility in Victoria is able to manufacture those hundreds of thousands of vaccines per week as has been promised. You know, Australia has been criticised greatly for the amount of vaccines, firstly, that we've ordered in from particularly Europe. If Australia is planning to use CSL to manufacture homegrown vaccines and vaccinate most of our population by the start of next year, is there any talk of us continuing that facility to bolster vaccination efforts in low-income countries? Yeah, and look, this is already happening because Papua New Guinea is obviously in the grip of a pretty dire COVID situation at the moment. Um, and being a, a nation of less wealth, they have less access to vaccines. They also have issues in terms of health infrastructure. And I think the federal government did actually commit to sending um, a significant quantity of vaccines, whether those vaccines are ones manufactured in Australia or they're ones that we've imported from EU, uh, but it has committed to sending a large number of vaccines to Papua New Guinea along with some medical expertise to help vaccinate um, certainly their frontline healthcare workers. But, you know, this, this vaccine nationalism is a huge issue and I've actually just been writing about that and talking to uh, Dr. Say Abimbola, who's the editor of BMJ Global Health, and, you know, he said that, since the you know we've come a long way since the HIV crisis in the sense of countries being more aware of their um, responsibilities and caring more about um, the welfare of um, people outside their you know their own nations and and that's particularly an issue in a pandemic where you know we've got in Australia we've got zero community transmission any cases of COVID at the moment uh, as far as I know uh, of late I have all come in from overseas so we're in, in a very very good position um, we're incredibly fortunate to be in that situation but so many of our neighbours and and other countries around the world are not in that position. That that means that no matter how good our vax, our um, uh, virus control is, our infection control is here. As soon as we open up our borders, we're, we're effectively, you know, we're we're back on the same playing field. And so it's in our interest, it's in every nation's interest to ensure that the rest of the world has 
as much access to vaccines because until they do and until this um, virus is brought under control around the world, then, you know, every country opens up at its own peril and, and we will see those variants start to come back in. We will see an increase in cases. You know, we will unfortunately most likely see, you know, quarantine breaches. So, you know, the <laughs> vaccine hoarding and vaccine nationalism is... Um, you know, it's inevitable. I think it's a kind of a res the idea that, well, I, I can afford this and I can take care of my own, so I'm going to do that. But it just does not work in a global pandemic. And if we move our attention across to the research going on behind this pandemic, you know, a lot of our attention is now on the vaccine, but there's still a lot of other interesting work going on. Can you tell us a little bit about the reinfection risk in older people? Yeah, so this is a big question with uh, um, COVID-19 is once you've had COVID-19, what is your risk of getting it again? Um, and obviously, I remember when I think the very first case of, of confirmed reinfection was was um, reported. And I think that was a real blow because there's that hope that there might be long lasting immunity that, that you get once you're infected. And, you know, obviously that would have implications for vaccination, but it also means that once you're infected, you're safe. So when we started seeing those first cases of confirmed reinfection, you know, in individuals where the, the infections were months apart, they couldn't have simply been a reactivation of a previous infection, um, although they were genomically different. Um, so this particular study was looking at um, 11,000 people uh, who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 in the first wave of the pandemic in Denmark and then looked to see how many uh, were reinfected in the second wave. So this was a good, you know, the second wave there was September to December and the first wave I think was around March, April. Uh, and what they found was um, that overall, if you've had previous infection, your likelihood of reinfection is reduced by around 80%, which is actually not as high as I thought. I, I thought it would be a much higher level of protection. So that's 80%. So your, your chance of reinfection is 80% less. Um, so that is, um, you know, okay, but not brilliant. But what they did find is that um, those who are older, so those who are age 65, um, previous infection only reduces the odds of second infection by around 47%. So this does have implications um, because it suggests that we can't rely on previous infection to provide natural protection against uh, against reinfection. Um, there's also, I guess, implications then in terms of the vaccination and how long lasting that is. And, and we, we won't know. I mean, we really won't know how this, how will these vaccines work in the longer term um, until we do have, you know, much greater percentage of the population vaccinated and we've got a lot, much longer time frame um, to see if they do get infected again. But hopefully vaccination offers greater protection than, than um, I guess, than infection. But we just have to wait and see. So moving across to cardiology, what does the latest research tell us about how SARS-CoV-2 causes so much damage to hearts? Yeah, this is a really big question. And, and we've seen, for example, in the US, there's been studies in um, professional athletes who've had COVID looking at, uh, I guess, looking at their hearts after they've um, gotten kind of recovered. And, you know, there's evidence of cardiac damage um, and uh, it's a bit of a query as to what's going on there because I don't believe that that's an issue with things like influenza or other other viruses um, and so what it turns out is that the heart muscle cells in particular are quite vulnerable to damage um, from SARS-CoV-2 because 
um, they actually carry the ACE2 receptor, which is the one that's um, that's on particularly cells in our nasal passages. And this is what the virus spike protein engages with to gain entry to the cells. So heart muscle cells carry those ACE2 receptors, whereas um, other cells in the heart don't. Um, and what they've also found with this is that um, the virus actually does quite severely disrupt the organisation and function of those heart muscle cells. So this was a study where they were using um, stem cell derived heart muscle cells. So it was a, a laboratory study and exposing them to, uh, to SARS-CoV-2. And they found there was a whole lot of stuff. First of all, like they you know, acknowledged that we, they have found viral uh, RNA in heart muscle cells of people who've died from COVID. So they knew it was getting in there. They're just trying to work out what it was doing in there. And so things like it does break down the actual structure, the fibrils that make up the structure of muscle cells. Um, it disrupts the mechanisms that actually enable the heart muscle cells to contract, which was pretty vital for the heart to actually be able to beat. Um, and what was interesting as well with this study is that they were using um, quite a relatively low dose of the virus. So they weren't, you know, just chucking it in a vat of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2. They were using the equivalent dose that would be someone with a mild case of um, COVID would likely encounter. So this does suggest that these effects, this cardiac damage um, can occur even in people with relatively mild cases. But the other thing that they suggested was that it does, it's the kind of damage that's long-term. You know, this is not damage that the heart muscle cells recover from rapidly. So, you know, again, when we talk about mild COVID or even asymptomatic COVID as being something that's shrugged off, there's so much more evidence and there's, there's gathering evidence that you know, even these very mild or even asymptomatic cases of COVID-19, there's damage going on under the surface that, you know, could potentially have long-term consequences. And, you know, we're seeing that play out with things like long COVID, even in people with mild COVID, who are still experiencing fatigue and brain fog and um, all these symptoms, you know, months and months and months later. But this might be, you know, potentially, I guess, a silent um, cardiac effect uh, and again, this, you know, really further emphasises the importance of us maintaining so many of these public health um, measures to reduce the risk of infection, like mask wearing and hygiene and, um, and you're just trying to avoid being exposed to this because there's so much we still don't know about the long term consequences. And finally, could you just give us an update, Bianca? What's the deal with clotting and the AstraZeneca vaccine? Yeah, it's kind of a hard one to answer. So obviously there's been quite a few countries in Europe now that have um, halted their vaccination campaigns using the AstraZeneca um, Oxford vaccine based on a series of reports of um, thrombotic events. And there were a variety of, there was pulmonary embolism, there was um, DVT. And I think the from memory, there was around 14 uh, cases that had been reported from a variety of, from across Europe. Um, the tricky thing is that there's, there's sort of arguments to say, well, that that's actually lower than the background level of clotting incidents that you would expect in the general population. Um, so, you know, and there was there was no safety signal that so far has come out of any studies of this vaccine suggesting that there might be an increased clotting risk. So there, there's a lot of unknowns in this, but you know, as someone else has pointed out on Twitter, which is, you know, a great source of information on these things, um, you know, seasoned epidemiologists in the EU are looking at this data and public health experts are looking at this data and if they're making this judgment call to suspend their vaccination programs, why Why is that? They wouldn't be making that decision lightly because particularly in, for many of these countries, it's really setting back 
their um, their vaccine schedules. So it's it's a tricky one. The TGA has looked at the evidence and they've said they've found no um, safety signal there of concern. AstraZeneca obviously has um, has defended its vaccine and said that there was no signals of clotting risk with any of the studies that they did. So it's it's a big unknown at the moment. As, as again, someone has pointed out, the risk of dying from COVID is vastly greater than the risk of dying from a clotting of, in terms of based on the, the frequency that's been observed so far. So, um, it, yeah, remains to be seen. But again, I think this is one of those things where the more vaccinations occur, where these safety signals will either die away or we might start to see others emerge so it's it's a big unknown but yeah it's a watch this space i guess bianca thank you so much